There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. This would be the end of the story. We've had the traditional shootout on the street and the bad man will soon be dead. But some men of legend and folktale have been known to continue having their way even after death. The outlaw and killer Pinto Sykes was such a person. And shortly we'll see how he introduces the town and a man named Connie Miller in particular to the Twilight Zone. Alright guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema, the Twilight Zone series. I am your host, Jimbo. And I am your other TZ co-host from the 5th Dimension, 80s E. 80s. We're trucking along right right through Season 3. We're up to Episode 7, The Grave. And for those of you that can't see Eric right now, he looks like he's freshly risen from the grave. Trying to wake up this fine afternoon. Yeah, we're about ready to go back into the grave. Not struggle busting today. Yep, so um, another lackluster episode, if you will, um, but we'll get there. So, Eric, if you want to take it away. Sure, if I have to. (laughs) The Grave. This is the Twilight Zone season number three, episode number seven, and it was directed and written both by Montgomery Pittman. Well, that's kind of already off the top. That's kind of in question, and we'll get there in our trivia uh, about the authorship of this particular uh, episode or story, if you will. The original air date for this episode, uh, near Halloween on October 27th, 1961. And, of course, let's get ushered to our favorite part of the episode. On this day in history. All right, so on this day for October the 27th, on this day in history, 1947. Let's go all the way back to 1947, and let's talk about a little radio show called You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx. You ever heard of that, uh, Jimbo? Yeah. I have. I, I've heard of it. I don't think I've ever actually listened to an episode of You Bet Your Life. I've probably seen some clips of it throughout the years. All right, let's skip ahead to 1954, and Walt Disney's first TV show, Entitled, it was just entitled Disneyland, and it premiered on ABC uh, TV. All right, here's one that we're all, uh, well, you and I at least are probably familiar with. In 1955, just one year later, the uh, the famous movie Rebel Without a Cause, starring James Dean and Natalie Wood, is released. And I, if you want to check your history logs, I think we covered a, a James Dean triad. Well, mm-hmm. what's that been? Probably about a year and a half ago, we yeah, covered we, we, all three. We covered of his all of his movies, so yeah, uh, check that out if you uh, want to get a little James Dean in your life. All right, so 1988, the release on home video of the movie E.T. E.T. It was 14 million copies of the movie E.T was sold and just by way of a little personal note i remember thanksgiving 1988 all right i'm going all the way back it was a big deal my aunt actually purchased i don't know what she paid for the vhs cassette and it was like a big deal that we were all going to eat thanksgiving and watch uh et (laughs) on vhs and it was like a really cool moment i I remember that sticking out in my mind i think i was probably like let's see 88 i would have been about uh 12 i had just turned 12 years old i think but uh, obviously, a blockbuster movie, E.T., uh, a good one, and it was released. I can't believe, I mean, 14 million copies, that's, that's a lot. All right, let's skip ahead to, actually, this is the last one that I have in my notes the, uh, to more modern times, which is still almost 30 years ago. But in 1995, 
the dramatic film Leaving Las Vegas, directed by Mike Figgis and starring Nicolas Cage. And it says here in my notes, he did he actually win an Oscar for Best Actor for that movie, I guess? And Elizabeth Shue was his co-star. So that movie was released on October 27, 1995. Hmm. So with that... Uh, uh, uh. Not so fast, my friend. Oh, you got some stuff. Jippo right. has some no- dropping some knowledge here on this All day. All right, lay it on us. On the actual day of October 27, 1961, so the day that this released, Eric, I have two gotcha. trivias. One, the first Saturn launch vehicle uh, makes an unmanned flight test. Oh. Also. So the Saturn rocket, then? Or is that was that the name of the... I think it was the name of, like, the, uh, the ship, the okay. Saturn. Yeah. And yes, Eric, the short-lived American Basketball League starts play, lasting only one full season and one-third into the next season. And it's the first league to have the three-point shot. Okay. And the the winner of the uh, first uh, full season, you will, showed the Cleveland Pipers over the Kansas City Steers three games to two. Okay. And the Kansas City Steers also won the were, were crowned the champions of the one third season. They were just like here, take it. We're we're, we're closing down. So here, here's your championship. <laughs> Eric, do you want to take a stab at what the number one song in America was at this time? Nineteen sixty one. Diana Ross and the Supremes. I I don't know. No. I'm just taking. I don't know. Run Around Sue by Dion. So uh, I thought that was pretty cool, too. So that's all my little trivia. So you can carry on. All right. I like that. So the ABL, or the American Basketball League, only lasted a a season and a (laughs) half. Season and a third. (laughs) Oh, a season and a third. Sorry. Just less than that. But not to be confused with the ABA. Right, right. That's what I thought at first. I was like, huh. I thought it started a long time before that. All right. Good stuff for the... On this day in history, we got a lot of good stuff there. Going back to our episode here, entitled The Grave, though, um, let's look at our total production costs, something that we're always familiar with. We run down and give you the rundown on this. Is uh, The cost was $51,641.27 for the total production cost, so it came in right around uh, average probably cost for a, a, an episode. Dates of rehearsal were March... 9th and the 10th of 1961, and the dates of filming for this episode were March 13th, 14th, and 15th of 1961, and I do believe, it's in my trivia, this was slated to be put in season two, Mm -hmm. but uh, for whatever reasons, I think they thought this was a good Halloween-type episode, and so they stuck it in this slot in season three, and that's all I have as far as preliminaries, so Jimbo, go ahead and shoot us. Bang, bang, Western style that cast. Uh, let's just don't bring Westerns up, Eric. You know how I feel about those. Um, <laughs> but there is several, uh, there's several supporting casts, which I'll just name. But uh, some of the main ones, I did a little bit more research than I probably should have. But um, this <laughs> stars uh, Lee Marvin as the, as the, as the main person uh, named Connie Miller in this episode. Eric, he was in Paint Your Wagon in 1969. He was also in The Dirty Dozen. I'm sure you've probably seen that. But a little bit of uh, trivia about Lee Marvin, and I did not know this, so it makes me appreciate him more. He was a scout sniper in the Pacific uh, Theater during World War II. He participated in 21 amphibious assaults on Japanese-controlled islands. Wow. So he is a bad Jose right off the bat. Uh, (laughs) Yes, he is. During the Battle of Saipan... Uh, most of his company became casualties during that uh, event. But during that, he was hit by machine gun fire, and then he was hit in the foot by a sniper um, where he he went to the naval hospitals where he was recovering for a whole year. Um, He had previously rank of corporal, but by the time that he was released, or uh, he had been demoted to private first class uh, when he was discharged due to troublemaking. So I don't know what happened, but uh, hats off to Lee Marvin, man. What a true G.I. Joe American hero, man. I yeah. mean, 
awesome. And you'll find out several of these actors in this episode were in World War II, so I, th- I think that's pretty cool. Uh, next, we have James Best. He played Johnny Robb. Johnny, or Johnny, James, of course, most iconically known for his role in Dukes of Hazard, where he played who, Eric? Roscoe P. Coltrane. Yeah. A little bit about him. His uncle, and I did not know this either, his uncle was Ike Everly of the Everly Brothers. So his mom was the sister of one of the, of the Everly Brothers. Okay. And, Eric, he was raised by adoptive parents in Corridon, Indiana. So not too far away from it's just a short hop, jump, and a skip. Uh, he was also in the Army Air Forces during World War II. Then you had Struther Martin, <laughs> played Mothershed. He was in Slapshot in 1977, but he's probably most famously known for Cool Hand Luke, where he played the warden in the jail. Uh, Eric, he was born in Kokomo, Indiana. All right. So what another, we have here, what we another, have here, is a failure to communicate. <laughs> yeah, he was good. Yeah, I am Luke. Another Hoosier showing up in the Twilight Zone. So yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. But Eric, he was the swimming instructor for the Navy in World War II. So um, you're seeing a lot of these guys that serve their country, and I think Rod paid it forward to him by saying, "Hey, come on, let's let's give you a little time in the spotlight." Then he had Ellen Willard playing Iona Sykes. Um, she didn't really do much. She did a couple of TV shows, but nothing really stood out. I, I, I read somewhere that, you know, it was the, the stress or something caused her that she didn't want to act anymore or something. So I don't know. Mm. Then he had Lee Van Cleef. He played Steinhardt. Um, this guy was in Escape from New York in 1981. He was also in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Um, but he was in over 170 film and TV roles, and a lot of them the uh, Spaghetti Westerns. Uh, Eric, you know what the Spaghetti Westerns are, right? Yeah, they were uh, shot in Italy, right? Right, right, Italian, yep. Then you had William Chali, uh, Shaley, uh, J- he played Jason. Uh, he was in Five Easy Pieces from 1970. You had Stafford Rep, Ira Broadley, he played Ira Broadley, uh, of course, legendary Chief O'Hara from Batman in 1966 series and the movie. Uh, also with him, I did not know this either, but he served in the U.S. Army Air Corps during World War II, uh, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Then you had Larry Johns. He played uh, Corcoran. Uh, not much about him. Uh, Dick Geary, he played the Pinto Sykes, which is... One of the, he's talked about a lot in this movie, but only seen for a few short seconds at the beginning, which we'll talk about. Uh, But he was in Ghost Driver 1957, but he was also in The Sword and the Sorcerer, where he was in control of the stunts. He was a stuntman, uh, which he was also co-founded the uh, Stuntmen's Association. I did not know that he co-founded that. So he was in several of the stunts, uh, credited for stunts throughout his career. Okay. Uh, then he had August Angelo. Uh, he was one of the townsmen that was uncredited. Uh, then he had William Burnside, another townsman uncredited. He was uh, in the show The Man from Uncle in 1964. They had Jack Downs, another townsman uncredited. He was in Pacific 13 in 1956. And yes, Rod Serling, narrator, self-host, who's uncredited, but we all know who he is, uh, for The Twilight Zone. So there is your cast for The Grave. All right, thank you very much, Jimbo. Oh, of... One more, one more thing yeah. I forgot. Uh, I only found one really cool trivia piece, and I forgot to put it in when I said I was going to put it in. So Ari didn't remind me. So I guess I'll do it right now. So okay, so uh, it's the my gr- fault. No, yeah, it's, always, when in doubt, always blame Kyle or Eric. That's my <laughs> motto. So yeah, here we go. See. <laughs> the grave. Uh, this is from my uh, Twilight Zone Companion Third Edition expanded and revised by Mark Scott Zickery. Everybody, Twilight Zone fans, should get one of these. They're pretty cool. But The Grave, a spooky story of the Old West, is moody and genuine with many fine character performances by the likes of James Best, Lee Van Cleef, Struther Martin, and Stafford Rep. The man in the starring role, however, did cause some problems. We had a guy who was a little too heavy on the bottle, director of photography <laughs> George Clemens remembers. We weren't going to use him between four and the night, so he spent the time over at a bar very close to MGM. When we started that night, he was so rough on this horse... I knew it. He backed the horse right up to a picket fence, and then both of them went through, and I thought he was going to kill himself. He got out (laughs) and wanted to work. 
So we had to call the night's work off. And I told Buck, I says, fire the son of a, you know what, just recast. Mm. But they wouldn't go for it, and we went on. Eventually, it ended up as a very fine picture. This is him, Lee Marvin. To leave the story at this point would do uh, would be to do Marvin a disservice, though. The next day, he apologized to the crew, Buck Houghton recalls, because he said, Everybody was ready to work, and I wasn't, and I'm terribly sorry, and you just watched me go today. And by God, he put in a day's work that would knock off, uh, knock your hat off. So I thought that yeah. was pretty interesting. So, yeah, that is. Uh, I have some other uh, quotations. I think from James Best in my trivia notes when we get there about uh, Lee, oh, good old Lee Marvin. A lot of uh, <laughs> highly decorated war veterans here in this cast. So yeah. that's uh, that's good to know. That's uh, some good stuff. And uh, by the way, and I'll I'll get to it too. But I I think the cast itself was a good cast i mean it was very well put together and i thought they did a pretty fantastic job for the episode overall maybe not so much but we'll get there shortly let's uh go ahead with a little plot here of this episode lawman connie miller and this is from imdb i should cite it uh, it's not my own personal uh plot but lawman connie miller rides into a small dusty town not long after the townsfolk have gunned down the man he's been tracking for four months he feels like it's waste. He's wasted that four months, and someone bets him twenty dollars. He hasn't uh, got the nerve to visit the dead man's grave. He takes the bet and has little difficulty going to the grave. Leaving it, however, proves to be another matter altogether. Dun dun dun. And uh, well, I don't want to jump into what I take ex- exception with right off the top, but uh, <laughs> let's go ahead and start the episode. <laughs> From its beginnings here, so the opening shot, if I remember correctly, yeah, it's just a pan of an old western town, and the camera pans by a saloon. Okay, I have a question right off the bat. That makes you paint this picture that this is set in like the wild, wild west, you know, sure. way back in the early days, but at the very beginning of this shot, you see... <laughs> <laughs> the covered wagon or whatever or the, the 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 wagon there you know what i mean and i'm like eh, it looks a little too high tech for the oh, okay. uh, as a wagon you know what i mean right um i didn't notice that but one of the things that uh i noticed was i i think it's mothershed the gun I don't know if it was the way it was shot. It looked like it was a machine gun the way the bullets came out. And there was like a big fireball that came out the barrel of the gun. I was like, man, if if everybody missed, he got him at least two or three times because it was it was kind of kind of weird how the uh the gun discharged. Um so back to the setting here. We're on a windy, dusty street in the old west. Pinto Sykes, this criminal who's uh outlaw if you will he's on the run and he's surrounded on all sides by an old-fashioned posse all right and he's shot down like a dog in the street as they say i he didn't know, have man. a prayer i wouldn't <laughs> want any of those guys shooting at me i mean they they they, they made the stormtroopers in star wars looks like marksmen <laughs> I mean, they were terrible <laughs> yeah and johnny rob mentions that too later in the episode he yeah one of the lines is like well, eight of us shot at him, but only one well, of us well, hit him or something. But like we don't that. know who. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Pinto is shot down, and he's still alive. And the, he, there's a uh, the, the, well, I'll, I'll illustrate this later. But there's one single shot of him and his hand reaching for his gun in the middle of the street. I thought that was an important shot, and I wish they would have reused it later in the episode. And I'll tell you why. But uh, later on. So he's shot down, but he's not dead. He's still alive. So I let's can't remember who. I think it was Mothershed who says, "Let's get him to the old jail." That was let's the take line. him to the jail. <laughs> yeah. So they drag him to the jail, and uh, Mothershed, which that's a weird name, by the way. I wonder. I wish the episode would have explored how he got the name Mothershed because that's. Kind let of me weird. ask you. A, let me ask you a question right here. They've been. This guy's been terrorizing them for who knows how long. We know that they've sent out Lee Marvin's character four months ago to hunt him down in different cities and all that. 
But if you shoot the guy, why are you going to move him? I mean, why waste the time of taking him to the jail and having to clean the jail up and sanitize the jail again? Yeah. Why not just let him die in the street and call the coroner, let's call it a day? Right, right. Just call the man in the black suit and haul him away. Right. Yeah. Seems like a lot of extra. Well, I guess they needed it for, you know, his deathbed. Well, I won't call it a deathbed confession. It was, yeah, more of a deathbed hexing. But to, me, hated, but to me, he hated everybody. Yeah, yeah. But to me, it would have been more powerful to see him struggling for air in the street and and cursing them and putting the curse on the town or whoever shot him or uh, what's his name, Connie Miller. Yeah. If you would have been able to see that instead of just oh well, he told us in the jail or he told his family this. I think it would have been more powerful for this episode. Agreed, agreed. I think there's a lot of cinematography that's missing in this episode i think could have made it a lot better and i i agree with your point there that yeah that's one of many uh i think things that they could have maybe added or made it look a little more uh captivating or yeah for sure so uh mother shed tells johnny to go johnny rob to go and fetch his mall or excuse me his paul and his sister because sykes only has a few minutes to live <laughs> which how did they know? Like we're not he's not hooked up to a bunch of machines. How do you know that he only has a few minutes to live? But all right. Anyway, so uh this after this uh particular scene, the the camera pans to which what I think is one of Rod's better introductions. It pans to a wooden door, right? And Rod comes out from behind the wooden door and gives his opening narration, which I thought was really cool. Dude, I would have I would have loved to see him come out of an outhouse. That would have been the funniest thing of all time if he would have came out with like a newspaper under his arm, tucked under his arm. Yeah. <laughs> or a wanted poster or something. It would have been funny. But yeah, alas, yeah. that's why that's why it's an award winning and not a comedy, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um so he gives his uh opening monologue and uh, his entrance in like like we said is is pretty uh iconic in this episode. I'll, so then that takes us to act number two, and then we open on the same street, right? And it's, except it's nighttime, and with a shot of the saloon, I'm looking at it right now. And uh, the lawman, if you will, Connie Miller, which he didn't have a badge or anything, did he? I guess, you know, normally if there's a, a lawman or a bounty hunter, there's always, I don't know. I, just, um, I guess we're just supposed to, that, that's really kind of being picky on my part, I guess, but... Um, as the audience, you don't really know who, who he really is until pretty deep into the episode. Like you just think he's just some guy that wanders in off the street into the saloon. And, uh, but we come to find out through the course of, um, conversations here after he goes into the saloon. Well, first he meets a man named Jason standing on, he's like standing in a darkened corner of the street and, Connie asks Jason, why'd they fence off that piece of street down there? He, mm-hmm. And then Jason replies, it's his blood. If you could see down under that dust, you could see his blood down there. So uh, Jason's just like the, what, how would you describe him? He's like the weird town, maybe he's the town drunk. Yeah, or, or the, it reminds the, me of, uh, he kind of reminds me of the guy in the original Friday the 13th, if you remember the guy that rides the bicycle. He's always okay. he's always like at the campsite. Oh, you know they're gonna, yeah. you're all gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> Just trying to look like the like the, the the weirdo. Yeah, he's the weird guy in town. Um, so we we come to understand that this is Pinto Sykes' blood that's buried underneath all of that dust that's blown in. Uh, and there, the wind, and that's in trivia too. The wind is constantly blowing throughout this episode like that was what the director wanted that the the sound of the wind blowing the entire episode and i'll talk about why that presented a few problems in the uh later in the episode but connie enters the saloon ira the bartender we meet him and he pours connie a whiskey and there are three men's three men uh that are playing cards at a back table in the back of the saloon and connie wants to know who shot sykes like you know, who who got him. And Mother Shed says, the whole town shot him. 
And then Johnny Robb pipes up and says, the whole town ain't much of a marksman. Out of eight shots fired, only one of them hit him. And we don't even know who it was that got him. The bullet passed right through him. I'm I'm glad he seen that he carried that over to the Dukes of Hazard because he couldn't really hit anything of that either. Yeah, his there are a lot of a lot of similarities in uh, Roscoe Pico trains. Uh, what? How would you say it? Like his voice and intonation and his uh, all all of the things that go into the, his accent even uh, sound kind of similar to Roscoe. Yeah. So Connie says he spent a long time looking for for him, speaking of Pinto, but Pinto on his deathbed basically says he didn't even try to catch him. Like he had him in Albuquerque and, you know, Connie might've been afraid or he side skirted him or whatever. I don't remember the exact line, but that he would yeah, really try said, that he hard said, to look, catch he him. Said, he said, you know, we, when, I think it was in Albuquerque. He said, look, he even told you where he was going to be and you didn't show up because you, you yeah. were scared, you know, right. he said you never showed but the one thing that kills me about this whole episode, too, is you've got uh, Johnny Robb. He plays the guitar the entire time he's talking to like, And he'll be like, oh, ba-da-dum. I got this 20-piece, that I'm going to bet you're not going to go. Do-do-do. You know, like, this is terrible. I wonder if he actually... If he actually... If James Best actually knew how to play a guitar because I'm going to throw this out here on the andy griffith show he plays uh, a a character named jim Lindsay on a couple episodes that was in a band and he but all of the shots of him playing the guitar on the andy griffith show are cutaways of someone else playing so i don't think he really even knew how to play the guitar which he may he may explains he may have knew how to strum a few chords but i don't know about actually playing right like why is a guy i'm just saying like why is a guy who doesn't know how to play the guitar always playing a guitar in an episode that yeah that's kind of weird but yeah you're right he he's like i don't know the guitar it's like a it's like a bard or something in this episode so uh where did we leave off connie uh, he was hired by the town we come to find out and sykes because you know sykes was wanted in three states he was an outlaw he actually grew up in the town but he was actually wanted in three states and um and then it was disclosed that sykes was buried near his ma now up at the cemetery and sykes dying words concerning connie he said you uh he said this he said you ought to be able to catch him now uh you ought to be able to catch him now but Uh, That if you ever come any ways close to his grave, he'll reach up and grab you. And that's the first key to our episode. He's like, if you get anywhere near my grave after I'm dead, Sykes says, Pinto Sykes says, I'm going to reach up and grab you. There was obviously uh, some dislike there between Connie and Sykes. So at this particular point, I call her Eerie Ione enters the saloon. And I may be skipping ahead a few spots but Ione enters the saloon, and Ione is uh, Sykes' sister, and actually startles Connie and everyone inside when she bursts through the door, and Connie pulls out his pistol and uh, points it at her, and then once he realizes it's her, you know, he backs off, but she asks uh, Ira, the bartender, for a bottle of rye whiskey, and he says, well, you gotta tell your pa, like, to slow down, like, you can't be drinking all this you know, probably due to his mourning of the loss of his son, he's drinking too much whiskey. And I, Erie Ione says, no, it's not for my pa, it's for me. And, uh, you know, Connie and Ione greet each other with a little small talk. And then Ione says, you've been chasing him for so long, Connie. You ought to feel lucky tonight. You know right where he is. All you got to do is walk out there. Uh, walk out there, isn't that nice? And then... She sort of walks out of the saloon and sort of cackles. I don't know. Her laugh was, I know it was supposed to be like kind of sinister, but it wasn't really all that scary to me. I don't know. She's supposed to be half deranged sister that's drunk all the time. I don't know. Let, Let me ask you this question. How come when she opens the door, his hat stays on, but when she leaves, the hat flies off? Did you notice that? No, I if didn't it's windy outside, if it's windy, 
Uh, do you think that was just to build uh, fear, momentum, whatever? Yeah. Wind plays a big part in the episode later, too. Like, yeah, right. I didn't notice that the, high, the hat flew off one time and didn't the other time. Okay. I'll have to go back and check that. You caught a good little tidbit there. So I'm going to skip ahead to where I'm, I'm a little behind, and I'm going to get to where uh, Act 3 kind of opens up. We take our commercial break, and then... Which, let me just, by way of, I don't know, trivia, like... The rest of, the first couple of episodes in Season 3 always had a title shot when they came back from commercial. I don't know if this is just how they cut it together for your voodoo or whatever, but... And then the, the, the ones since, you know, maybe episode three or four, they, they haven't, they've gone back to the original, which I kind of like the title shots. And I, I wonder why, I don't have any trivia, but I wonder why they did title shots on some and not others. But anyway, I they, digress. They, 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 they did a title shot. Of this episode? Yeah, I just watched it. You did? Oh. Yeah, where it says the Twilight Zone? No, no, not not of the t- the t- by title shot. I mean, oh, you mean when it has a the, still the photo from water. the episode, yeah, with the title and then who wrote it and everything, and that they would use it when they came back from like a commercial. And I only noticed it in the first maybe three episodes, and they've kind of gone away from it. But anyway, that's that's deep in the woods. That's for another day. But Act Three, Johnny Rob. We reopen back in the saloon. Johnny Rob asks Connie if he's afraid to go to Pinto's grave. If he's afraid of Pinto's grave, and Connie says no, but Johnny Rob doesn't believe him, and he uh, he gets a smack right across the face. That was a pretty dramatic scene. A little overreaction, right? Yeah. Uh, he's like putting a, wood. I, he's putting wood in the uh, potbelly stove. Well, yeah, but but why why is why is Connie putting wood in the stove? Number one, it's not his establishment. Yeah, I don't know. Was he it's probably just? I don't know. Um, you know what but I mean, Johnny like, Rob. Johnny Rob. Because you know, that. if somebody comes into Eric's house, ADZ's house, and touches the thermostat, there's going to be words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hands off. <laughs> I need to get one of those little covers that has the the lock key lock, <laughs> so that uh, nobody can mess with my. Yeah, man. That's a big difference in bill every month if we got people yeah, jacking is. around with your thermostat. <laughs> so, uh, Johnny Rob gets a belt across the face, but afterwards he says, I'm not armed, I'm not armed, or something like that. And then uh, later he proposes a bet that Connie won't go to Pendle's grave. He won't call on Pinto's grave. It's close to midnight. While he's, he's strumming a- the while he's strumming the guitar the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> He's got a $20 gold piece, and he's willing to put his money up that, you know, Connie won't go to the grave. Hey, Eric, a $20 gold piece. I looked this up. Uh, if we say that $20 gold piece was from 1961 to now, uh, it would be worth $204.50. All right. Well, that's, uh, well, I know what I want for my uh, prop piece. There it is. You don't even have to ask me. I'll take the $20 gold piece. <laughs> So Connie says he'll take that bet, and then Steinhardt pipes up, and this is the first we've heard from Steinhardt. He's back there shuffling the cards at the table, and he says he wants some of that action too. So Connie goes deep into his uh, coin purse or whatever, and he says, I got another $20 gold piece, and uh, he'll take that bet, and it's agreed upon. And then we move over to the the bar again, and uh, Steinhardt says we have to work up a little detail on the bet before Connie leaves. He says it's agreed upon that uh, they're going to use Ira's Bowie knife and that the Bowie knife will be a marker at the graveyard to prove that Connie went all the way and didn't chicken out at the edge of the, you know, at the edge of the graveyard. And the way they're going to know that is he's going to plunge it into the earth and leave it there. And then the next day, those three are going to go up there and see if, you know, he completed his end of the bargain. So Johnny Rob says, one thing, Connie, won't nobody go up there and steal that knife once you've planted it? He says, there's nobody brave enough. Because they're all saying, they all freely admit that they're scared. But Connie's like, I'm not scared of Pinto. You know, he's he's not moving off of his, he's not afraid. So that knife is guaranteed that he went in there and did his job. So Connie exits the saloon and heads to the graveyard where Erie Ione, he meets her again. Uh, She's making her way from the grave, offering Connie some whiskey, which for a guy (laughs) 
who's known for drinking, he should have taken that shot of whiskey. But he says, no, nah, I don't get my nerve from a bottle or something like that. I can't remember what the exact line was. Connie refuses. And he walks, uh, he creeps his way up. And then as Connie's creeping his way up to the grave, he hears a, a loud crackling noise. And it turns out, he again, he's really nervous. He pulled his gun on Ione in the saloon, and he whips out his pistol again at the grave. And, you know, he's comes to find out that it's a slamming door, and it startles him. And, uh, like I said, he quickly draws his pistol, and then once he discovers what it is, he, he then turns and walks up to the freshly dug grave. And Jimbo, take it for a second. What happens there after that? Well, he goes he goes up to the grave and everything, and and um, he, you see him take his knife and poof, right, right, and jams then, it into the earth. Then the next cuts to the next day, next morning. So, let me ask you a question, real. Let me ask you a yeah, question, real quick, Eric. You ever been? Um, you ever been alone and and started freaking out like like this guy did at the grave by himself? You ever, you ever oh, yeah. like either at your house or or like outside somewhere? You ever, you ever had that happen? Oh, many times where well, I get well, up. Give us the give us the most famous one, Eric. I think the audience would like to know when you were the scaredest you've ever been. Uh, well, I can tell you, it's maybe not in line with the, the first one that jumps out to me when I was a kid. I had trouble sleeping in my bed. Like, I would get scared, so my, my parents would let me come out to the living room and sleep on the couch. Well, I, my wild imagination took over. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, and I could have sworn there was... So, the way our house was set up, you could see from the living room straight into the kitchen, and I could have sworn... My mind... You know how your mind plays so many tricks on you, and it convinces you that there's something there that isn't well i believe that there was like a big like bobcat sitting on top of the kitchen sink and its tail was waving back and forth you know how cats kind of perch up on a countertop and its tail was like waving back and forth dangling and i was awake and i'm staring into the darkness and i think somehow this killer cat has gotten like into my house and I was, you know how when you're so terrorized, you're like you can't even move. Like my body was just like frozen, and I must have come out of a dream or something that where a cat was chasing me or something like that. And then my mind told me that it was playing tricks on me, like that this cat had gotten into my house. That's one vivid memory that really. Uh, it turns out, turns out it was just like a paper grocery bag that was sitting on top of the counter, but it looked like a. <laughs> bobcat to me and i discovered it the next day when the sun was up and everything like oh this is just a because i don't know how but somehow i went back to sleep but i remember being terrified that's yeah that's one that sticks out how about you any tales of being just terrified um or or you hear things or your mind plays well okay i went I went on a tour of uh, the Waverly Hills Sanatorium down in um, Kentucky, in, in Louisville. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the fourth floor, there's supposedly, allegedly, shadow people. Um, okay. So we were with a group, and they said, well, we need we need somebody from this group. We're all going to stay back here. We want this person to go to the other end. I mean, the other end of this hallway. Uh, I mean, it's like like a football field pretty much yeah and uh i said oh, okay, all right i'll do it <laughs> nobody would say anything stupid me so dude i started walking man and and you know how you know how when you start getting a little scared your blood goes cold you know what i mean you start yeah. sweating boy halfway down there man i'm hearing creaks and cracks and because it's because because <laughs> yeah. down there there's like no windows they because they thought that the tuberculosis that the cold air would help cure mm-hmm. you which probably gave him pneumonia and killed him. But <laughs> so once you get once once I got either halfway down or three quarters of the way down, she's like, "All right, turn around." And she says, "Stick your hands out." So you're supposed to stick your hands out like this. And I kid you not, Eric. I mean, you know, I'm a. I call it like I see it. 
but they're all down there, and I can hear them talking. They're going, oh, did you see that? Did you see that? And she's like, well, do you feel anything down there? And I'm like, I felt somebody, like, pushing me in the back. Like, like pushing me forward like this and i'm like man this is not good <laughs> I, was like, uh. I was like i feel a little a little push but uh they're like look at his arms his arms are growing or whatever i'm like what is going on here I'm, <laughs> now at this point i'm really freaked out you know but i played yeah. it cool you know this all right you come back down man and whew, i'm glad that was over with because i was like <laughs> man but that 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 is pretty crazy when you feel somebody pushing you pushing you in the back you know and you're just standing there and i'm like yeah was it just my mind? Probably, but yeah. Did you hightail it back down the hallway to? Oh, absolutely. But the th- the thing of it is, when you when you go on a tour like that, you're only allowed to have your flashlights on when you're in the stairway, so you don't trip. They make you turn okay. them off the rest of the time. And it was just happened to be one of those nights where the the full moon was out and it was just shining in where the windows should have been, but it was, it was creepy as it was already. But Ooh, yeah, boy, that, that is, was uh, that was mine. So creepy setting. That reminds me of and just to know, story just that. to know how many. They're, 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 and for those of you that don't know, um, they had so many people dying on a daily basis there that they have a thing called the death shoot, which I walked down halfway, where they would they would just put them on these bodies on these gurneys, and it would go down like down to the bottom where there was a hearse waiting or a coroner to uh-huh. take them away. And when you walk in there too, that was pretty crazy too. But I mean, just knowing that so many people died there. You know, kind of like this episode of The Grave where they have a little cemetery. You know, you're just like, man, this is kind of crazy. So, uh, right. Eric, we'll have, to, we'll have to take you down there and get you get your feelings on that one time. Where is this place? Where's the it? It's in Louisville, Kentucky. The Waverly Hills Sanatorium. You need to check okay. it out. Take your daughters. Mm, yeah, maybe. Maybe I'll pass on that one. I don't know. <laughs> Back to The Grave in our episode. Let's go ahead and wrap this uh, bad boy up and then we'll get to a few trivia points. Boy, we're... Uh, we're telling stories and time's getting away from us. So <laughs> after Connie sticks his uh, knife Jim, where Jimbo left off, he sticks his knife in the earth. He pulls it back out and then plunges it back in. And then the, the camera shot, we see Connie sort of get pulled out of frame from uh, from the bottom. And then the next day, the scene changes. And it's the next day and Johnny Rob is standing on the street in front of the saloon. He says, I don't understand it. It's morning and he ain't back yet. I just can't help but feeling somehow I got a man killed. <laughs> and then uh, Erie Ione approaches carrying a plate. Uh, <laughs> and she's hum- she's humming and singing a tune. A plate. And uh, we di- we come to discover that this was uh, Pinto Sykes' plate that he used to eat off of when he was a kid. And she's going to take it up to the grave. So I'm like, all right, well, maybe that was a thing back then. I don't know. Eric, did you ever have a, a certain plate that was your favorite growing up that you ate off of? Not me, but I think my daughters had like a Barney plate or something that they liked to Dude, eat we, off all the time when they were. I had this one, and I don't even think I have it anymore. My parents may have it. We'll have to ask Art Toast. But it was a it was a plate about this big, and it had like some of the Looney Tune characters on it. You know what I mean? Okay. From when I was a kid, yeah. so that was my favorite. Sorry, carry on. The memories yeah. are coming back <laughs> in this episode. Yeah, I know. I see. So they all decide they're going to go to the grave. Um, so then they discovered when they get to the grave that Connie's laid out over the grave and then Steinhardt, he gives his best sort of Sherlock Holmes explanation of what really happened, saying that it was being that it was dark. Connie didn't realize that he had put his knife through his coat tail. And then when he stood up, he essentially became so afraid that his heart gave way. And then his assertion is that he died of a heart attack, basically scared to death, scared himself to death. Yeah. And I own in the closing scenes of the episode, so she doesn't buy it because of the direction of the wind. She says, look at my cloak. Well, what what direction was the wind blowing last night? Well, it was blowing from the south. And then she stands up and, oh, which, look at my cloak. You know, and the cloak isn't blowing over the grave, thus disproving Steinhardt's theory. And she has that weird little, it's not even really good. She could have done a lot better, that little cackle. And then the episode ends. And that pretty much does it. Uh, anything by way of trivia you want to throw in here? Well, I, well, I like Rod's closing narration. Basically, he doesn't tell you which one's which. It's basically up to you to decide which which ending you want to believe. If it was uh, an accident, like he said, where he died of a heart attack, or if it was really Pinto Sykes reaching up and grabbing him. Right. 
All right, as far as trivia, we got some controver controversy here, as the Brits call it. So I'm just going to give you a brief, I don't know, a couple sentence explanation. Basically, the controversy regards the authorship of this uh, story, if you will. You got what? The knife, the grave, and the hand are all themes in these, I guess, four to five different versions. Anyway, hopefully this will make sense as I read along. Just So, Maria, a lady by the name of Maria Leach authored a compilation of ghost stories called The Thing at the Foot of the Bed and Other Scary Tales in 1959 that included a story called The Dare, in which a group of kids sitting in front of a fire telling ghost stories dare one of the group to go to the grave of a man who was just buried earlier that day. The boy takes a dare and states he will stick a knife in the grave and prove he was there and then proceeds to meet the same fate that night. So he mm. gets pulled into the grave. All right, the second story by Leonard Q. Ross. He published a story in 1941 called The Path Through the Cemetery. The tale is, now this one is set in Imperial Russia. It describes a very timid man named Ivan who responds to a similar challenge from a Cossack officer. I'm not sure what a Cossack officer is, but uh, it's a Cossack officer in the, the Tsar's army. And, um, well, there's a little footnote there. It says, with, but he takes a sword that he receives from the Cossack officer from a higher up, basically, for the purpose and meets a similar fate. So there's a Russian story, number two, by Leonard Ross. Number three, many reviewers have cited Leo Rostin's very short story called The Path Through the Cemetery as the source of this episode. While this much anthologized tale is probably the immediate source, there are many other available ones which include three essential story elements, which I already talked about before, the grave, the wager, sorry, the wager and the knife, I forgot the wager part. The oldest printed version in England, in, excuse me, in English to be found from dates uh, dating back to 1825 when it appeared in the pages of uh, the Terrific Register. The story has been recently reprinted in a compilation of tales from the Terrific terrific Register, Ghost Books, and it was reprinted in 2010. And this story revolves the Westminster Abbey, which is an English-themed story, obviously, and it was around the year 1735 when the grave, uh, when Henry VII's chapel vault was open for the admission of the queen's body. Okay, and let me skip down. I'm skipping ahead here. And the queen, uh, basically, the queen was buried in a vault anywhere near 1735. The only significant change is that the wielder of the knife survives his ordeal and relates much of the tale in first person. So apparently, the the first person in the story goes and opens the king's vault and lives to basically tell the story. But a lot of the themes are still similar with the English story that goes all the way back to 1735. Now, let's come forward and talk about Montgomery Pittman, the author of this Twilight Zone episode, and his inspiration. He says he got the inspiration for this story sitting on his father's knee. I was just a lad growing up on my pappy's ranch in Oklahoma when I first heard the story of a desperado who swore he would reach out from the grave and get the man who had been tracking him down, Pittman explained in the CBS press release. It seemed that whenever the wind began to howl, my pappy and his friends would sit around a pot-bellied stove and he would tell this tale. Now let me stop right there. Who? What's to say that his, you know, in antiquity, this story hadn't been passed down from all of these different versions over the years to his grandfather or whatever, and then it sounds like his grandfather maybe just was retelling the story to Montgomery Pittman. And he says this didn't happen just once in his life. This is Pittman again. He says, but uh, anytime the wind was blowing up a storm in Oklahoma, you know, it's windy in Oklahoma, a lot of tumbleweeds and stuff. It's out on the plains. So apparently this happened multiple times and he would tell these, his grandfather would tell these stories. All right, now let's talk about one of the critics. This is number five here. The, the critics... Af the morning after the telecast, one of them said this. The morning after the telecast, Les M. Crater of Riverdale, New York, wrote to Serling, commenting, it's an almost ep uh, it's an almost exact replica of a short story written by a Russian author. So he's citing a Russian author 
saying, hey, you guys are, are, you know, basically plagiarizing this story. He says, there is nothing wrong with this if it is adapted in an intelligent way. Your program was definitely put into a new format, and it was very good. The major objection that I have to your show is that you gave no credit whatsoever to the original author. I believe that it was Chekhov. So this critic says he thinks that the story goes back to the uh, Russian roots by this guy named Chekhov. Your credits in the end gave uh, one the impression that Mr. Pittman wrote the show without help from anyone. This is plagiarism. I'm sure that a person of your obvious education must have at some time or another come across this story. So again, another accusation of plagiarism by not Rod himself personally, but Montgomery Pittman. I, your thoughts? I think it's it's kind of well, weird well, that there's so many different you know adaptations here, of the story. Here's, here, here's my thing about this, Eric. So if I was sitting here and I just pulled out my laptop and I started writing a story, we'll say a dog uh, jumps off a cliff and grows wings and flies and lands in an African tribe and brings humanity and restores the life back to its once was. But it turns out the dog was a Greek god from back in the day that saved the world from one time or another. Okay, I just totally made that up right now. But there could be a story out there or a book with a similar thing that I had no clue of. Right. Is it just a coincidence? I didn't plagiarize it. I came up with it on my own right now. Yeah, so I see what you're it's saying. One of those, kind of it's one of those line. things where if I didn't know about that story, how is it plagiarism? Is it still considered plagiarism if I had no no earthly clue about it? Now, if I said, okay, I'm this young space team named uh, Duke uh, Skyniter, and I have a magic <laughs> uh, sword that's a flashlight that can cut people in the dark... Now, okay, now you can see clearly there's a problem there. Um, yeah. Where you're where getting it came a, from. a cease and desist letter from. Exactly, from, yeah. yes, from Disney probably. But, yeah, but, the, right. but that's my thing. Sometimes I think these people go overboard where we've all heard the tales of like Bloody Mary or the Urban Legends Bloody Mary or the one where the babysitter gets the phone call and, oh, the killer's upstairs or, you know, stuff like that. But it's just an urban legend. So... An urban legend comes about. Can you plagiarize an urban legend because it's just a story that's been passed down for generations, right? Or made up? Yeah, yeah that's where it gets. Yeah, it gets kind of tricky because you might add or subtract certain things from the urban legend. That's kind of what makes it grow, right? The urban legend right. grows as you, you know, take things away and add things, and it goes down through the corridors of time, if you will. All right, I'm going to cap it off with this one, though. This is the final one. <laughs> Listen to this. I was the one responsible for that episode, recalls James Best. All right, he says, oh, I no. told Monty Pittman that I was born in Kentucky, but raised in Indiana, as Jimbo alluded to earlier. One of the things I remember most about my childhood was the ghost stories I used to hear. I collected ghost stories. I told Monty a couple stories and suggested that he use one for the television series. He told me that if I write a script and direct, uh, he says if I write a script and direct it, I'll have you cast. I told him you do that. I can't recall how much time passed, but one day I get word that I'm going to be on the Twilight Zone, and I got to work with uh, Lee Van Cleef, Strother Martin, and Lee Marvin, and it turned out to be one of it turned out to be one of those ghost stories. Monty was such a pal, and he remembered our agreement and kept his word. So here's James Best saying, hey, I'm the one that wrote this story, basically. So we got a lot of authors here. I think one, two, three, four, five, five, six in all in total for this episode. So, yeah, a lot of uh, inspiration coming from a lot of different places, even some of the cast members. All right. So let's move on to other trivia pieces that don't relate to the story. Connie Miller's hat is called a campaign hat which can be traced back to the mid-19th century. Although it was made by many manufacturers, Stetson was a major producer of these hats. Soldiers found in the, that the middle crease of these hats, uh, they found them to be impractical because it accumulated rainwater, and so they started pushing the center up so that it would shed water. Sometime around in 1911, the Army adapted this style of hat as 
called the 1911 Hat Service or the M1911 or it was also referred to as the Campaign Hat. Uh, unofficially, it had several names. This is the hat, by the way, that Connie is wearing. It's called the Lemon Squeezer, the Mountie Hat, the Ranger Hat, the Drill Instructor, or my favorite, the Smoky Bear. Which, if I do believe Smoky Bear wears that Stetson hat when he's telling <laughs> little kids you can prevent forest fires. So, there you go. The Smoky Bear, a little background about the uh, the hat. All right. Lee Marvin, Strother Martin, Lee Van Cleve all appeared in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance in 1962, just one year later. Not a favorite of Jimbo. Jimbo said off-air that's a terrible movie. He doesn't like it. He's completely wrong, but... That'll be an argument for another day. You, you know I don't like westerns. In. You know I don't like westerns, Eric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've heard it a million times. You don't like westerns. Okay, whatever. Or John Wayne. So, this movie was released six months after the uh, actual episode broadcast. Uh, in the bar of this late 1800 setting, you can see a stuffed jackalope. You know what a jackalope is, Jim? <laughs> yeah, I, I read Good. that trivia. That's pretty funny. Okay. So anyway, it's dismissed because the the jackalope, which is uh, an alleged impossible hybrid between a jackrabbit and an antelope, it was an urban tale, but it was concocted in the in the West in the 20th century. It wouldn't have been around in the 1800s, so uh, it was probably just a good laugh for the cast, a good little inside joke for everybody on the set. Uh, it was a popular joke in post-war mid-century America. Uh, both Lee Marvin and Strother Martin appeared together in The Great Scout and Cat House Thursday, the movie of 1976. Never seen that movie. How about you? Mm -mm. No, I'm getting, a, I'm getting a nod. No, The Great Scout and Cat House Thursday. Well, that's a mouthful of a title. I, I might have to check that out, I guess. So, this uh, particular episode was originally intended for the second season, but as the schedule was revised, the episode was pushed into the month of October as a Halloween offering. And then I just got a couple more here. Pittman insisted on the wind blowing during the episode from the opening shots to its final conclusion. The fan blowing across the graveyard in the closing scenes, however, generated so, or too much noise, or so much noise that none of the actors' voices could be heard clear enough on film, especially during the closing scene, so all of the dialogue had to be recorded and synced into the soundtrack. So on March 15th, Lee Van Cleef and Strother Martin and James Best recorded their voices on stage 2A. Ellen Willard recorded her lines on the same stage on April the 19th, 1961, so they had some editing cleanup on the voice tracks. Here we go. Lee Marvin, we've already established, he was a drinker. There is no way to hide that, recalled James Best. He would take a few down in the morning when we reported to the set. You could smell it on his breath, but you know some people have a problem with alcohol and others can hold their liquor. He showed up on set and knew his lines forwards and backwards. That might be going back to, he might be remembering what you uh, cited, Jimbo. The, You know, he almost collapsed and went through a fence one day but then came back the next day ready to work <laughs> um then finally this is the last bit of trivia here this was the third of three episodes to use the name sykes for a character the name sykes was featured in a penny for your thoughts and dust all right oh and there i'm sorry there is one goof well there's probably more than one but as connie miller climbs up the hill to the grave a very prominent vertical line is visible when uh, in the backdrop of the artwork. I don't know if you noticed that, but you can kind of see the fold in the artwork that was in the backdrop, the cloudy night sky or whatever. So, wow, we've gone almost 57 minutes. Jimbo, man, give me your impressions, your thoughts, your feelings, and we'll put this one in the grave. Well, first off, you said you were taking uh, what as the prop? I'm taking the twenty dollar co uh, coin, gold piece. Taking the twenty dollar coin. You gonna take the Bowie knife? No, no, that'd no? be cool though. No. I think I'm. I think you know. Most people say since I'm a fatter guy, I take the plate, but uh, I think I'm gonna take <laughs> um, Pinto Sykes's gun uh, from the beginning. So okay. here we go, the Jimbo breakdown. Number one, um, 
even though it was an all-star cast, I just think uh, Ellen Willard, she, she was like out of place. I, 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 don't, I don't understand. I don't think she fit the part. Uh, I could have seen Elizabeth Montgomery playing that part and playing it a lot better. Um, that's where my mind went to with that. Um, I, I, I think the discombobulated shooting of the cinematography just they could have done so much better and probably done it cheaper um like like having pinto sykes say that stuff to the people's face because then everybody could look like uh oh uh oh and and he could have mm-hmm. said hey and you tell that connie when he gets here that it's on him um i think that would have drew me in more to this episode the whole james best playing the guitar as he's talking and making the bet and all that that just got on my nerves a lot why does she have to bring a plate to the grave? I have no idea, uh, unless they're sig- signifying that he's not really dead, that is ghost, and he's going to eat. I guess. Um, it's, to me, it's just it's just a lackluster episode. I, I, you know, even though it's an all star cast, which you can't take nothing away from what they were given, I think it could have been so much better. So for that reason, I am going to rate this as a six out of ten. Um, it's it's just a it's just an okay episode. It's, there's nothing really that you're going to remember. There's not really a Twilight Zone twist. It's more of a an imagination thing. Do you think he died of scared himself to death because he stabbed his own trench coat and or his coat into the grave, or was it really Pinto Sykes coming up from the grave? Um, I think it would have been cool at the end of the episode if they would have had like Pinto Sykes laugh, give him give a ghoulish laugh or something, you know, so that way it would have really drew you into like, oh, it is a ghost of Pinto Sykes. So that's my thoughts, Eric. What's yours? Man, we really almost line up <laughs> pretty closely on this one. We're pretty parallel, really. Uh, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, of course, it doesn't mean anything. This was probably the best Twilight Zone Western, at notwithstanding if you want to consider 100 Yards Over the Rim a Western because the setting was in the 1800s, but it also had time travel. But so far, this is the best Twilight Zone you know, Western, it's definitely better than Dust or Execution from Season 1. I think it's better than those two episodes. However, the cast, I thought, did an excellent job. Like you said, I thought the cast was great. Um, Maybe, like you said, other than Iona, she could have maybe ratcheted it up a a notch or two. But uh, I know less is supposed to be more. In regards to cinematography, right, what you touched on already... The, the shot of Connie just disappearing out of frame, just it just came up short for me. And I'm not saying you have to have Sykes become a zombie and pull Connie into the grave or something like that, you know? <laughs> something wild and outrageous. But, you know, uh, maybe a bit more horror element to it. You know, make it scarier. And, and you, you reference, hey, maybe have Sykes Pinto have a couple lines to draw people in, you know, where uh, sort of like a deathbed sort of scene where he's you know, casting his hex on, you know, whatever, uh, just to show the animosity between him and Connie. But uh, here's my thing. Here's something they could have done, in my humble opinion, that would have been, you know, the shot where he's his hand is reaching for the gun early on mm-hmm. in the episode? Why not have a, a single shot of his hand coming out of the dirt and grabbing him by the collar or something? Just simple things like that. It just, I know you're, like I said, less is more... And that you're, they want to leave it all to your imagination, but they it was very sloppy ending to me. Like they could have made it a lot better, or or, or even have uh, Connie after he stabbed himself and he thinks he's dying, drop his gun and have his hand reaching out for his gun at the end. I mean, you could have used the same shot. Yeah, I just think the the cinematography kind of missed it on this one. There there, there would have been a lot better ways to to make it a lot yeah. more creepy, and or or like. He plunges his knife in first, and then he pulls it out. Maybe there's like blood on the knife, and then, you know, the hand comes out from the dirt. I mean, it would it would have been simple, inexpensive ways that they could have kind of made it better. But I'm I'm no expert, but I do think the cast uh, was excellent, and I like one IMDb reviewer. They described the episode as such: a superlative cast and a meandering script and i think that's an accurate description the the it was very sloppy ending it just i don't know it just could have been like better in so many ways but um if i'm gonna rate it though 
what did IMDb give it? I think they gave it a, I think they rated it kind of high. I think it was somewhere in the mid sevens. Yeah, it's a seven four. I'm going to go seven at best for this one. I think it's a middle of the road. Like I said, the cast, I think they were great. It just, the story just didn't dry. And, and more especially the cinematography didn't pull you in enough and dri- drive the story home. You know, Absolutely. enough for me. All right. So we're in agreement on this one. All right. What's next? What's next on the docket? Next week is. Well, next week, we're, if Eric doesn't behave and get himself under control, we're going to have Anthony put him out in the fields. <laughs> out of the farm fields. Uh, uh, so it's it's probably one of the more well known Twilight Zones, and it's definitely a step up from this one for sure. Um, so it's, it might be one of the best of season three, even though I'm not a big fan of that kid. Uh, I don't really like the episode either, which we'll get to. Yeah. Which I'm sure Eric will probably yell at me for that one too because uh, he always talks about it. So yeah, it's a good life. Yeah, if you want to follow us on social media, we are the Tragedy of Cinema. You can find us anywhere. Uh, well, with that being said, Eric, you got any closing comments or anything before we leave? No, no, we've gone way over on this uh, this grave episode. So yeah, we'll we probably ahead put a few put it to probably bed. Put a, probably put a few people in the grave after listening to this one. Yeah, really. Well, with that being said, I think this episode's coming to a close, and that's a wrap. And cut. Final comment: You take this with a grain of salt or a shovel full of earth as shadow or substance. We leave it up to you. And for any further research, check under G for ghosts in the Twilight Zone.